Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. The Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade, and this episode is on Islam, eating disorders and body image, with a particular focus on Ramadan. And we're joined by our colleague at CAR, Fahin Hassan, as well as Maha Khan, an eating disorder advocate who runs the Islam and Eating Disorders Instagram account, YouTube channel and blog. Oh, yeah, so much. I can't wait to hear about the conversation. Yeah, it's so informative. I think you're going to really enjoy it, Jade. I'm also so glad we're doing an episode on this topic that directly speaks to our Muslim audience around the world. Completely agree. According to the Pew Research Centre, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. And as of 2015, approximately 24%, so almost a quarter um, of the world's population are Muslim. And there are many majority Muslim countries around the world, such as Afghanistan, Egypt, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, Indonesia, Iran and Turkey, to name a few, though there are differences concerning the relationship between state and religion. So, for example, where some Muslim majority countries are secular, so they have a declared separation between government affairs and religion. Turkey and Nigeria, I think, are good examples of this. Others are Islamic states. So this means they have adopted Islam as the foundation of the state and constitution. So examples here are Pakistan, Oman, Saudi Arabia, and then others have Islam as a state religion, though there's still freedom of religion. So some examples here are Malaysia, Algeria, and Morocco. Um, sorry, you can tell I got really interested in this. Um, <laughs> there are um, many other countries, of course, that have large minority Muslim communities. And just having a quick look at the Office of National Statistics, Great Britain, so England, Scotland and Wales, is home to over 3 million Muslims. I'm glad you got into this, Nadia, because it's so interesting. So so much like useful context there. I've actually learned a lot from what you just said as well. I, I hold my hands up. I actually don't think I knew all of that detail. So, Yeah, well, it's useful for me too. I went to a Catholic girls' school and we really didn't learn much about other religions at all, which is embarrassing so moving quickly on um there is a lot that we can talk about on the very broad topic of islam eating disorders and body image so we've decided to focus on the relevance of ramadan to coincide with fahin's recently published paper which focuses on the experiences of 14 young muslim women living in the uk who talk about their experiences of ramadan fasting disordered eating and body image i don't want to give too much away but I really want to highlight the neat study design Fahin used. So Fahin interviewed the women twice, once in the final week of Ramadan, and then again two months later. That is a very neat study design, like you said. <laughs> um, and it's unusual to interview people more than once as well, which is which is great. I think it's very interesting to see what Fahin found. And I like that it allows for like the comparison, reflection back. So... I'm excited to listen. I think everyone else is. Let's find out more. Yeah, let's get to it. Hi, everyone. My name is Farheen Hassan, and I work as a body image researcher at the Center for Appearance Research. 
I primarily do work with adolescents in India and I'm currently working on developing a body image intervention for kids in rural India. But I also do work and research looking at the Muslim community and specifically um, looking to learn more about um, body image and disordered eating and religion and community and how all of these factors interact and intersect um, in these communities. I'm a blogger behind Islam and Eating Disorders. So I was the first uh, Muslim who set up a website and started speaking about eating disorder. And my whole focus was on Muslims because we had no awareness of eating disorders in the Muslim world. So I remember uh, setting this up in 2012 after I had come out of the hospital. <laughs> so then I started speaking about it just to create the awareness that this was not something in you know, which I was self-afflicted. This really was an illness. So this is, you know, where the whole, um, I mean, you could say this whole platform was created and people started getting in contact. And, you know, we started working around these issues and uh, about the eating disorders. And um, my, my whole aim is A, to offer support to anyone who comes my way. Um, and there are no limits. And then B, create the awareness and C, look for the, a treatment and you know whatever is coming out what is new go through that and see how we can work around that excellent well i'm so excited to be speaking with you both so i wonder if i could be very nosy um, and particularly as this is audio if you're both comfortable if you could both say what your ethnicity is and where you grew up yeah sure um I am Indian. Uh, I'm a Muslim Indian woman, but I have primarily grown up living in the Middle East in the United Arab Emirates. So just like a lot of mixture of like Indian culture and Arab culture um, is where my heritage is from. Great. Thanks, Vaheen. And Maha? Yes, um, I grew up in, I was born in UK, uh, but I grew up between Pakistan and UK. So, yes, so it's, um, they both are my home. I, I, I love both countries, but yes. So my ethnicity, ethnicity is Pakistani. So, yes, I was really young when I went back to Pakistan. And then I've always traveled between the two countries all the time. So I'm never, uh, because of the pandemic, I had to be in the UK for like two years. But no, otherwise I'm always in and out. Nice, lovely. Thank you so much for sharing that, both of you. And what a kind of a treat it is to have two countries that you feel as as home. Today, we're talking about Islam, eating disorders and body image with a particular focus on Ramadan. And so to set the scene, I wonder if we can start by talking about Ramadan um, for people who are a little bit less familiar with Ramadan and what it is, what it's about what it means for the Muslim community and what happens during the Ramadan period. So, and I wonder if you can both jump in, um, perhaps Fahin, if you start us off. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Nadia. Um, so just to kind of give a bit of introduction, if someone's listening in and they really have no idea, um, Ramadan is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar and it's a really important holy month for the Muslim community. Um, it has a really big religious significance for us and um, this is the month for that reason that we observe fasting from sunrise to sunset. Um, and 
the time of Ramadan is really interesting because it changes every year. It's based on the lunar cycle on the moon, um, which is quite difficult to explain when you're trying to take a day off in the West and you try to explain to your manager that I can't actually tell you when I need a day off because it just depends on the moon. Um, so it varies every year and it shifts by a month or so. So what uh, Ramadan this year was around um, June, May, June, and the next year, again, it'll be a month before that. Um, and... Maybe, Maha, you can talk a bit more about what we do in Ramadan and the purpose of fasting. So, yes, so uh, the significance of Ramadan is it, it is one of the five pillars of our faith. So we have five uh, pillars of faith. You know, one of them is, you know, belief in God and uh, uh, fasting, salah, you know, which is praying and, you know, giving the charity and performing the pilgrimage. So this is, you know, uh, it's it, it because it's one of the it is one of the pillars of Islam. So it is something which Muslims have to observe. We don't really have a choice except if you are ill and you know you you, you can't fast for the medical reasons, then you are exempted. You know, but the option is, you know, you still have to give something in charity. So you know, this is like one of the most sacred and profound pillars of our faith. We don't have a choice. And in Ramadan, you know, it's all about the community coming together. It's, you know, so much to do with, you know, you, it's like an inner reflection. It's a month of inner reflection, reflecting on yourself, reflecting on your behavior, on your spiritual and, you know, physical and social shortcomings and working through them. So this is one month, you know, which completely is a month of God, you know. So for the 11 months, we have a choice. But this is one month where we are really restricted. So we really have to, you know, do um, all the right things. You know, we people go to mosque, which is a great blessing because the whole community gathers in the mosque. You have to be mindful of your language. Uh, you have to be mindful of your behavior. Everyone is extra nice. So when Ramadan comes, you have to be in a Muslim country and you will see how the atmosphere is so beautiful and so, so spiritual because we all are super, super, super nice. But that doesn't mean it's restricted to one month. It means for next 11 months, you also have to be really, really good. So it, this is, you know, the, the whole blessing. Then, you know, it's all about, you know, family eating together, sharing their meal. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it, it carries a lot, a lot of holistic benefits and health benefits and spiritual benefits. So it, it is a month, you know, which is really looked forward to and really celebrated towards the Muslim world. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, both of you. It's like really painted a, a picture. And then in terms of, if we can go into the fasting a little bit more, because you have the there's the meal before sunrise and then there's like the breaking of the fast. I wonder if one of you could explain that a little bit more for me. Maybe I'll start with Suhoor and you can talk about Iftar so, because you're explaining it so beautifully. Um, so yeah, we start our fast with the pre-dawn meal, which is before the sunrise and that's called Suhoor. And traditionally, you're meant to eat something in that period of time because it says that if you eat something at that time, it's meant to give you strength for the rest of the day when you're fasting. Um, so usually, if you really follow the religion or what we call the Sunnah, which is the practice of our Prophet, we would eat dates um, and the Suhoor and then you have water and you just have a light meal um, but if you go in the Indian culture where I come from suhoor is usually a really heavy meal where you'll have like you'll have like parathas and you have curries and then you're pretty much immobilized for the rest of the day but the point of the suhoor is really to kind of start your fast with something that'll give you energy uh, for the rest of the day and Maha you can take it forward. 
Yes, so the breaking of the, we open our fast and when the sun sets and that's the prayer time. So with the call to the prayer, we immediately open our fast and the tradition is with dates, which is all over the Muslim world. I don't know a single Muslim country which doesn't follow this tradition, which is the from the Sunnah, from the practice of our Prophet Muhammad. So you have dates, you have water, then you go and perform your salah. And then, you know, it, it depends which country you're coming from and what is there. But normally, uh, it's actually um, when the fast opens, it's the celebration of the whole day. And, you know, people do make an extra effort because, you know, it's encouraging our family and friends to participate in this day. So normally it's seen as a, as a celebration. So when uh, the fast does open, you will see it depends which country you are from. So you will see colorful dishes appearing on your uh, on your table. So then, I mean, that also sets the tone for the night prayer. Because Ramadan is not about rest, it's about the active worship, you know, so because then we have to go for the prayers. So basically it really, but you can't be like, you know, then exceeding the limits and eating too much because then you won't be able to perform your prayers. So you need to be very, very mindful. So, yes. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you again so much for for sharing all of that and really painting that picture to to set the scene for the rest of the conversation. So, Maha, I want to to stick with you and really based on a lot of your advocacy work on on Islam and eating disorders. I wonder from your experience of how relevant Ramadan is for Muslims who might be struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating. I think Ramadan is, uh, is is very, very relevant and it's very significant. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, if you're a non-Muslim, you're, you're one of your biggest triggers, biggest issue is Thanksgiving and Christmas and holidays. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim or non-Muslim, you know, we all have this specific period of uh, one time, like this time of the year when everybody's panicking. So, you know, the non-Muslims, it's Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas, New Year, uh, long weekends, anything, you know, because it's around food. So for us Muslims, you know, the, the people who are struggling with disordered eating and eating disorders, it's Ramadan. And the reason it's Ramadan, because all of a sudden, these rules and guidelines come, in, in, come into place. So you really don't have a choice. So, you know, even if you are fasting or not fasting, you have to follow the guidelines. For example, you know, the, 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 the spiritual aspect of the Ramadan is greater because this is the month when the Quran was revealed. So I do see that, you know, that instead of focusing on the spiritual month, uh, aspect of the Ramadan, which is greater, which you have to work on, people really focus on. But, you know, it's the 30 days when everybody around us is going to be fasting, not eating. So in everybody, whether, you know, it's, it's bulimia, whether it's BED, whether it's anorexia, everybody's super, super triggered because, you know, uh, everyone not eating, it, it, it's, it's a natural trigger for anyone who's struggling with eating disorder. So, you know, if you are like, you know, now uh, the, the, the medical boards are more aware of the eating disorder community is very, very aware of Ramadan. So people have been uh, recommended not to fast. And even if you are fasting, you should be fasting under the guidelines of uh, your doctor practitioner or uh, someone, you know, from the eating disorder services, you know, a therapist or someone, dietitian who needs to manage you, your meal plans. So it's not a straightforward thing. But I have to say one thing that, you know, when I 2012, when I started my uh, website in 2013, when the Ramadan came, I spoke about the Ramadan and there was absolutely nothing out there. 
So it was like, you know, me speaking, you know, uh, and really trying to get the message across, you know, who are you fasting for? Is it, you know, for uh, for Allah or for, you know, for your demon of eating disorder? Because normally, you know, when we are restricting, there is no way we are restricting for any other reason. It's primarily to feed this, uh, you know, what is inside us, our eating disorder. I think in 2017, maybe I'm not mistaken, or 2018, I'm very grateful to BBC for really uh, taking on this issue and speaking about uh, eating disorders. So they did create a lot of awareness. And then you can see from 2018, every X, Y, Z newspaper, tabloid, everybody started speaking about Ramadan and eating disorders. So you can see the significance of Ramadan to the people who are suffering from eating disorders because it's not a minor issue. And even the eating disorder community, the, the, the professionals, they all know that this is a month which can make you or break you. But break you is like more uh, more there. And by breaking, I mean that, you know, it is such, it's like a ticking time bomb, you know. It's, it is a month which can completely push you into the relapse cycle. So people, you know, it, it is uh, one month, you know, where you have to be super careful. You have to be super aware and you really have to like work through this month. And it's not just a month about you. It's a month where we are pulling in the whole community, the family, the friends and the community. Everyone has to be super, super mindful because the person you are dealing with is super, super sensitive in this man. Super sensitive, honestly. Yeah, everything you're you're saying makes so much sense to me and thinking about, because you've got the triggers on both ends in terms of the, the period of fasting and restriction. And then you've got the the eating together and the communal eating as well. So I can I can really see how it would be um, such a struggle. But I'm definitely not an expert in this area. So so thankful to have the two of you here. And Fahin, I really want to get into your recently published paper, which is very exciting. And I've got it open in front of me. So a qualitative exploration of motivations for fasting and the impact of Ramadan on eating behaviours and body image among young adult Muslim women in the UK. So let's start off, Fahin. Tell me why this was an important topic to investigate. I think the first and really big reason for me was my personal experience of kind of struggling to fast in Ramadan because of my own disordered eating, which was back in 2013, 2014. And as Maha said, there was no resources. And I wish I had found her back then and had like her blog to read on and think that, okay, I'm not alone. But back then there were no resources. Um, and then I kind of got into research a few years ago, maybe three, four years ago, and I started looking into this topic again because it's been very close to my heart. And I now, by now, there were a lot of anecdotal um, reports, a lot of essays. Um, I came across Maha's account on BBC. There was a lot on Vice UK as well. There's a lot of kind of conversations about this. But then when I started looking at empirical research, there wasn't a lot of work done. So there were a few kind of, there were a few important research papers published by a few researchers, I think in Turkey and Australia, who talked about um, how like they tried to find a connection between Ramadan and eating disorders, but most of their work was very quantitative and it was very focused on adolescents, which are a really important group to look at, but because adolescents don't always have autonomy in choosing whether they want to fast and don't fully understand this relationship maybe, um, there wasn't a lot of um, important findings. They didn't really find any connections. They didn't really find anything significant. And I think I just felt like there was more here. And I think I felt that 
what we really needed was some qualitative work we needed to kind of speak to the people we need to speak to the muslim community and really understand what is going on at a very individual basis because there wasn't even enough work to really say that these are the factors that we can then explore through any surveys um so it really started from there and started from wanting to understand what's going on um and that's what kind of got me thinking how we can look at this more empirically to understand these factors Wonderful, thank you. And so it, the the study was with young adult Muslim women. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? Uh, yeah, of course. So we focused on the UK, the Muslim women living in the UK because we just didn't want to have any confounding factors when you bring in other cultures and kind of other countries and nationalities. So we looked at Muslim women aged 18 to 35 and we asked that they would be fasting in Ramadan. um and because it's such a specific group to recruit um i had a big help from maha who shared our research on her platform and again a big thank you to you for kind of reaching out and getting your community involved um and we also had big help from the muslim women's network in the uk who are also another group for muslim women and they shared our research and kind of we managed to get in touch with about 15 women who agreed to be involved in this research and it was a really interesting sample because even though it was in the uk we had a very diverse population we had women from indian ethnicities from pakistani ethnicities um Syrian, Lebanese, which was really interesting to have that mix of culture come in. Um and it was also really interesting that we had quite a diverse mix in terms of their faith. So we had women who wore the hijab that is a head covering and then there were some who didn't. Um there were a lot of women who fasted every Ramadan every year, but then there were some who maybe were fasting this Ramadan after a long time. Um and then one of my participants maybe fasted the last 10 days and not all of Ramadan. And we unfortunately didn't have capacity in our paper to really go into this, but it was a very interesting place to start these conversations and really understand how they're experiencing this month and what's going on. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. So I really I'm like on the edge of my seat to get into the results. So would love to to hear about that and what I thought would be really nice to do is Fahin if you can give us a bit of a summary of the things that really stood out to you. Um but Maha if there's anything that like resonates with what Fahin is saying with what you've heard from your community and platform or with your own personal experience, please do feel free to like jump in and and share your thoughts also. Yeah, of course. And yeah, Maha, I'd love to hear if you kind of come across this experience or heard from your followers or your community if they have similar experiences. Um so I think some of like the th- three key things that we really found, one was that the participants said that because of fasting, they felt that they had an increased preoccupation with just their checking their weight, with their appearance, with constantly weighing themselves and they said a lot of that was in the fasting month. It started in the fasting month. but then it continued a month or two later when we spoke to them during the follow up period after ramadan so they said they were still thinking about their appearance a lot they were still weighing themselves a lot um and another really interesting aspect was that they felt that because of ramadan they were able to control what they were eating a lot more and they a lot of the majority of participants who said this they were quite proud of this that it was a good thing that because they're only eating iftar and suhoor and primarily iftar at the end of the day um and there's only one meal they're more easily able to control what goes into their bodies how they prepare those meals um and there's less kind of guilt 
about consuming other things. And so a lot of these participants, when we spoke to them two months later, they said that now that they can no longer control every aspect of their food, um, they're carrying a lot of guilt and anxiety because they're thinking a lot about what they've eaten, about how they've kind of gone over the edge, um, which was really, which was really concerning, really to like have these conversations and think about. Um, and I think another really interesting, which I was very surprised to find, but I guess not really, but it's something that's not really spoken about in the research a lot, was the family expectations around Ramadan. Um, so majority of the women spoke about how they had this pressure and expectation from their families that they would be fasting in Ramadan and that if they didn't fast, they didn't feel that they would be able to have this conversation with their families. Um, specifically, I remember one participant who wasn't able to fast because she was struggling with her disordered eating issues. And she said that for the last six, seven years, she hasn't fasted, but her family doesn't know because she feels this intense guilt that if she shares this with them, they wouldn't accept that. Um, so there's a lot of conflict for these for these women where they face these kind of preoccupations and anxiety and control over their food, but they don't feel that they can share this with someone in their family, in their immediate community, because of which they feel even more anxious and even more concerned. Um, so these, I would say, were the big, big takeaways from our conversations with these women. Yeah, and, and that last comment in particular sounds like a really tough place to be in. So it's like on one hand, you're trying to protect yourself and your health in terms of your relationship with food and the disordered eating component, but then not being able to, to share that with your family must feel very isolating in that way. So thanks for sharing. And, and yeah, Maha, I want to come to you and see what resonates or what other things have come up in all of your experience managing your your platform and community yes i mean i uh, fahin absolutely 100 percent. i agree because you know the ramadan is the month which uh, especially people with eating disorders and you know when they say that we have more control around their food you know this is a big example you know this is big testimony of how severe their disordered eating is because you know all year round they lose the control they feel they are not in control and then all of a sudden we have this set month with set guidelines you know in the time frame it's like you know that one of those fasting um apps some people try to follow uh you know you're fasting for a certain period and then you're eating so this you know is it's a big i mean for me this is like the big you know when people say but you know we feel we are in control and i'm like you're not in control you know this is something which is there so you know then for rest of the year, they're of course, they're, of course, they are struggling. So this is something, you know, which really, really, really comes up because they all feel so happy. You know, we did this, you know, this is what we ate. And, you know, for the rest of the day, we were like, we, we were abstaining from food and everything. So they feel really, really proud. But again, you know, this is when anybody talks like that, that, you know, we felt it was better. That means, you know, my God, you know, they're, they're how severe this uh, their ED still is. I mean, how huge their um, this ed is part of their life so you know for me that is one of the biggest indicator because as someone who has recovered they would never speak about uh, you know the, uh, about food in that way you know they would be like okay you know this is what they did their struggles would be completely normal but anyone who is uh, suffering from eating disorder they will definitely come up, come up with the food and the control and how much they are eating so when it comes to the body image, I mean, there is no way, you know, we, I, I mean, uh, you know, we, we go through this, you know, measurements and weighing and checking yourself in the mirror because, you know, it's a shifting your 
uh, focus. It's taking your focus away from the Ramadan and yourself, and it's you're you're focusing on something which is so destructive, and you're never going to be satisfied. So this is something you know, uh, like my people, you know, they 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 refrain, they kind of do not really do, because it's. <laughs> super uncomfortable for all of us, you know, and I really don't think so I have that much time to sit and listen to, you know, what the number in the morning was, what in the evening was, and uh, how they looked, because, you know, that's something I say, you know, how we are created, it's so beautiful. Are you doubting your creator? And uh, so, you know, this, this is something which really, like, sets them in. It's, it, it is, you know, you sometimes have to be really, really tough, otherwise they will be completely going into the destructive cycle. And I think the third key thing is, I mean, about the family. I mean, it's a lot of conversations with the family. And I'm always in the middle speaking to the mother or the father, you know, on the phone to them and explaining. So it's like, you know, listen to the, the person, hear their complaints and like uh, speak to their parents or, uh, you know, their friends or anyone, you know. So you, we always get someone in the family who can support them. So it's always, you know, like before the Ramadan, creating a safe environment for them. And, you know, we always work around that. Yes, you know, the food is one area, you know, where I can't do too much about. I mean, but, you know, I, I do say that, you know, this is shows, you know, how your ED is so strong. But other areas, you know, we do work around, like the family is one area we do work around, you know, like please uh, make them understand. And if they don't understand, send them to me because otherwise I will be wasting 35 days listening to their family problems. So, yes, so I do step in because I'm, I'm not a professional, you know, I'm not a therapist. I don't have the guidelines. So I can really, really, really step in and speak to their family and tell them, you know, where they are wrong and tell them where they are wrong. So, you know, we do work really, really well together. I think um, adding to what you said, Ma, I completely agree. And I think it just highlights how much we need therapists like trained professionals especially in kind of this area of body image and eating disorders who understand like what you said that you speak to the families or you explain to them that the way they are created by their god is perfect and they shouldn't be worrying about this i think it's really difficult to have these conversations with a western or a white therapist because they don't understand how big a role our families play in every aspect of our life but also our eating disorders and i think without kind of a locally based professional who understands these it's very difficult to kind of move on and get that support and it really shows how important that is honestly Farid I the one person honestly what family can do I mean I've seen I I was in the eating disorder unit I saw the relapse rates I saw what happened but you know when I speak to the family for example like you know from uh, uh, one country this uh, girl was having a lot of issues around dinner table and I said, and, you know, then there was her mother on the phone telling me what she should be doing. And then she's telling me, and I said, OK, tell me, what, what is the issue around the dinner table? And I could see, I mean, of course, you know, it's her disordered eating and, you know, the family is super uncomfortable. So I asked her mother and I said to her mother, can you please stop it? You know, can you stop doing this? And I said to her, this can't be about you because, you know, the ED, we want to control everyone. I said, you have to give in. I said, if you, I, I said, you have to listen to them. I said, not listening to them means how your, uh, strong your ED is. And then, uh, I mean, again, about the body image issue, honestly, you know, I, I did this, I wrote this study about the most ugly companion of the Prophet Muhammad, a peace be upon him. So I always send that, you know, with all these body image things to them. I said, read this article, now come back to me. And so, you know, they, they will, because, you know, they all are Muslims. And, you know, they, this is one, you know, I have a very strong card. And that is, as soon as, you know, you know, Fahin, you can't allow them. You can't allow them to be on the scale 24-7, you know. 
and all this, you know, this self-destructive behavior, there is no way I can put up with it. And they are scared as well. You know, I'm like, no, this is not, we are going to do this, you know, so you have to stop. So the one thing is this, you know, whole, um, uh, like, uh, you know, this uh, abuse, you know, the, the, the self-harm, that immediately stops. There is no way I'm putting up with that, you know. So that stops, you know, this whole, you know, talk about how ugly I am, yeah. I said, look, you're making me feel ugly now. So please, can you stop? I said, because we are perfect, you know. So, you know, this is something you have. You have to bring the religion in and, you know, you have to get the family involved. If the mother is involved and she's mindful, the father is involved. And then, you know, uh, you, you create a harmony, so, for example, like a few days back, I said to the mother, you know, she said, yes, of course, I'll do that because this Internet, some national days coming up in Middle East and it's a long weekend. I don't know. So she said, you know, but they want me to dress like that. And, you know, so it's like always making them understand and then telling them the mother, you know, look, she will be fine, but she can't be fine in two minutes, you know, or two months. You know, you have to be patient. And then you explain to the other person. So I think it's more like working with the other person because of, you know, it's like we are like ticking time bombs. <laughs> Anybody says anything to us, it's like we explode and the family's like, what happened? Why did they explode? So, yeah, so it is. Yeah, it's really like, you know, bringing the families like the must and the community and the friends, making them all understand it's a tiring work. But it's, it's a work, you know, which will make someone, you know, get back on their feet and become an active member of the community. So it's like killing the disorder. Yeah, I th I think having that whole community family orientated approach and and going back to what you both said in terms of having like culturally sensitive support and and especially if it's in a Muslim country, we don't even have the uh, you know ED units. You know, then what do you do? Then you have to be super smart. And I say to them, you know, I give them these case studies from Iraq and you know these countries. I'm like, look, no, you know, we we don't be limited get in contact with the hospital or arrange for a bed, give them the guidelines of what they have to do, get involved. And I think, yeah, and I think you just raised a really important point in terms of when we're thinking about this globally, that there are so many countries that don't have, I mean, eating sort of units are under-resourced in the UK, right? But there are countries where it's so, so limited. No, there are none, except I think in, uh, only in Pakistan, we have one centre, and they are like super economical. And, you know, I, I went and I visited them. So now, like nearly all of my people, you know, I refer them to this eating disorder center in Lahore. Because I'll give you an example. When I consulted someone and I said, you know, I have someone in Canada. And she said, you know, but my consultation fee is 300. And then per session is 175 for 45 minutes. But whereas in my country, I, you know, in Pakistan, my uh, mother's country, you know, um, they charge us only about $20 for the consultation with clinical psychologists, main psychologists and dietitian. And then per session is like only maybe $15. So, you know, the, the, that, you know, I mean, now, because we don't have these, none of even the Kuwait has nothing, Saudi Arabia has nothing, Dubai has priory, but this is like, wow, you know, sell your house or remortgage your house if you want to pay for that treatment. They're very, very expensive. So this eating disorder is a huge global money-making business. It's so less to do with, you know, people. It's more to do with bring the money in. Why is it so expensive? You know, why are you charging so much money for people's misery? Why are you making so much hundreds and thousands out of people's misery? I don't understand. You know, this is one illness which has the ability to kill. And this is the most difficult illness to beat because you don't have any medicine. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're really like just scratching the surface on such a huge 
problem. It's so systemic. Um, it just feels like there's so much that needs to be done. But yeah, just so grateful for people like you, Mahata, like to be kind of paving the way and and raising awareness on on these issues and and supporting people as you as you can. Um, Fahin, I want to come back to to your study. There's a, a question I want to ask because you obviously did the study during the pandemic, um, so I feel like it's added a whole other layer to what Ramadan might look like for people. Did you did that come up at all with your participants, and was there anything that really came up or was interesting in in relation to that? Um, yeah, definitely. I think we can't speak about eating disorders and body image and disordered eating and not factor in the pandemic, especially now when we have so much literature which actually supports that people had kind of increased anxiety and preoccupation with food and that in- eating disorders kind of increased during the pandemic. People needed more support. And this really reflected in kind of the conversations I had with the women because it was really interesting. So it was twofold. So a big majority of the women I spoke to said that they did have increased um, anxiety. They were thinking more about the way they looked, how much they were eating because they were fasting in Ramadan, which means obviously they were always at home. Um, They were kind of, a lot of them were by themselves, which means they were spiraling into thoughts they wouldn't usually have. They were focusing on parts of their body they wouldn't notice for example one of my like one of the participants talked about how she was thinking about her double chain and she's she's 25 years old um and it's something she's thinking about because she's stuck at home she's looking at the mirror more often she's kind of thinking obsessively about things about her body she doesn't like and a lot of them said that they're weighing themselves more than they ever have in their lives during this period because again they're in lockdown they're at home they're by themselves um but there were also a group of about three four women who said that they haven't thought about their body at all because being in lockdown means that they don't have to wear jeans, they don't have to go outside, they don't have to interact with anyone, so they don't have to really think about what other people would think they look like, Um, which was really, really interesting because they said that it meant that they could focus more on the spirituality of Ramadan because they weren't really thinking about what they look like, they weren't thinking about what they would look like in certain clothes or what people would think. Um, and I think that's something that's less reflected in the research we've seen so far. And maybe that's really the religious aspect of it that adds to it. It's because um, they were fasting. The Ramadan was almost a protective factor for them that they could focus on the religion, on the spirituality and not so much on what they look like, which... Uh, which was really interesting, which was very surprising, I think, because most of the research we've seen right now is leaning towards how harmful the pandemic can be. But maybe the question here is that religion can actually be a protective factor if people are really kind of immersed in their faith and in the process of fasting, which I think it's too soon to say, it's too little information that we have now, but I think it's definitely an interesting finding to maybe look into more in the future. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I feel like it does resonate with some of the more general research looking at the pandemic and people's relationship with food and, and their bodies in terms of you you have the a lot of people who for whom the pandemic is exacerbating symptoms with disordered eating and preoccupation with their body but you do have that pocket where because they're not being perceived uh, by others maybe feel like they're being less objectified perhaps um, and feel more free but then we have seen some some evidence of of people who've been able the pandemic has given them maybe perhaps more space to kind of lean into their recovery and focus on their recovery a bit more. But what you're you're adding is that added layer of then during Ramadan to really like focus and then focus on that spirituality um, aspect as well. So yeah, super, super interesting. 
So I'm conscious of time. So I've got two kind of questions I want, or maybe three, um, that I want to end with. So Maha, I want to come back to to you because at the beginning you you spoke a little bit about your community. So the the blog, the Instagram community that you have. And I'm curious that the, the community on, on Instagram is like 162,000. It's, it's huge. Um, and so I'm just curious to, to hear a little bit more from you about that in terms of what have you learned over the years. So you set this everything up in, in 2012. What have you learned from it and, and where are you hoping to, to go with it? I actually, I mean, uh, I think now even updating the Insta, Insta is like a, a huge effort. I mean, if I if I am given a choice, I would really move away from the social media. I really would. Uh, when the Facebook was created, somebody helped uh, me from my country. So when the Insta was, I never knew about the Insta, but somebody helped me to get set up the Insta and helped me, guided me through it. So basically, my whole uh, even with the with the website, my whole support came from Pakistan, because you know when you are helping someone, they want to do something for you. Even the app was created by someone in Pakistan. So you know I have like super zero <laughs> knowledge of these things, and if I am given a choice, I would rather because you know my so much time is taken up by by my people, and I really have to be involved there. So what I did learn, I mean, I, I mean, now we have to make so many things private, which is really, really sad, especially the real stories, which were on my website, because when I started this, I used to encourage people come forward and share and they did. But now because the work has gone so viral and people are picking up on who's so, I can no longer steal the anonymity. Yes. So when the stories initially were shared, you know, they were the pure. You know, they were really raw. I mean, you know, uh, about a 40-year-old mother, uh, you know, I really got deep into the community. You know, I was coming up with, uh, with these amazing stories and they were taking up six and seven months to write. You know, you're speaking to people, you're putting it together. This is their life. Mm-hmm. And it was so like original. It was so good, you know, and it, everything was so like, you know, you could resonate to. But now the problem is, you know, it's like Internet and everything gets uh, taken out of context. Everything is like uh, misinterpreted, you know, and, and people, uh, there is no uh, privacy anymore. People pick up on. So I think right now, you know, my my focus is, you know, the people I'm working with behind the scenes, you, you know, we are not updating my website. Insta is like, you know, just for the sake of it, we are updating just to, you know, let the other organizations know we are still here. Uh, so we are really working on, you know, uh, like the, 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 the treatment, you know, in the from there. We are going into the past, seeing, you know, what helped, uh, what worked in the Muslim health. Uh, and, you know, uh, we are reaching out to, to these holistic organizations from Malaysia to Pakistan. And seeing, you know, what is working with the, with the patients with bipolar or schizophrenia, I can see the areas, you know, where people get super panicked. So now we are focusing on that and, you know, lobbying every single Muslim government for heaven's sake, wake up. And, you know, we need these institutes. So I think the next step is to write to each and every single one of them. I don't know how many countries, the Muslim countries, I think, I don't know how many countries we are, but, you know, to write to each of them. So the focus is to get uh, Turkey, Malaysia and uh, Pakistan are the easiest countries to get involved because they are, um, uh, you know, in, in my country, they, our prime minister is really good. You know, they listen uh, the Imran Khan's government, you know, his people are good. They're more compassionate. Turkey is really good, really good. When it comes to the, the, these things and Malaysia is really good. So I think, you know, writing to all of them, coming up with something because, you know, now it is a crunch time because I have people, we don't have the, so yeah. So, you know, instead of like, you know, putting up recycled information on Insta, which I hate doing, but I don't have a choice. 
but again you know my my whole like knowledge is coming from these people like for example in Kazakhstan or the Turk Turkmenistan you know I have someone from there and you know my focus is she's two months pregnant and it's like getting her into the treatment or you know working in Somaliland you know getting those people in in Algeria so yeah you know I, there are lots of countries and it's a lot of work to be done so yeah now it's like forcing the government please listen do something about it yeah so this is our next step you know this is what we are going to work on so the insta is just you know i don't know why it's there but it's there why i need to update it i have no idea because all the information is there so it's such a waste of my time so the website is you know something i really have to focus on and really like getting the um, you know like the podcasts and uh, so this is something you know i'm away like really working on getting people on the on the podcasts uh, to share the stories but also at the same time sadly the the real life stories on my in the, on my website will may be made private you know from the next month because as so many people have picked up on and so many like uh, people no longer want their stories to be shared so yeah read them while you can <laughs> yeah yeah I maybe mean, we'll definitely link to the the website in our show notes and i completely hear you in terms of the time drain of social media and i think uh, it's interesting because i think it obviously does serve a um it has benefit in terms of raising awareness and, 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 you know, people are coming across that information fresh for the first time in, in instances. So there is definitely a, a use for it, but it's always so interesting to hear what else is happening behind the scenes and the other work that you're doing. And just, it's so exciting to hear you talk about the advocacy with, with government um, to, to really get this issue of eating disorders taken seriously in the Muslim world so I think um yeah really glad that I um asked that question I nearly dropped it because of time but I'm, I'm glad we we got that in and so I have two kind of final questions I want to ask both of you in terms of is there anything and I'm going to ask it in one so is there anything on the topic of Ramadan and eating disorders or body image that we haven't covered that feels really important to get across now and then is there anything you want to say perhaps directly to the Muslim community and individuals within the Muslim community who may be struggling with an eating disorder and or body image concerns uh, when it comes to navigating Ramadan? And Fahim, maybe I'll start with you. Thanks, Nadia. Um, I think in terms of topics that we haven't covered, I think I don't have anything to add. I think we've spoken about everything in quite a bit of detail and I think there's always so much more to talk about um, but I think in terms of what's really relevant there's nothing I can think of um, but in terms of speaking to the Muslim community who might be struggling with concerns especially when Ramadan comes around I think um, a really important one I would say is to speak to somebody if if you're struggling don't you don't have to kind of go through it alone even if your immigrant family may not understand there might be people online who do there might be your friends who could support you even if they don't fully understand what you're going through i think it becomes a lot harder when you deal with these things alone and i think a really big part of that in our culture is the guilt that comes with it if you're kind of struggling and you can't fast because of it and you feel guilty because everyone around you doesn't maybe understand what's going on and why you're not fasting and i would say that that guilt is very natural but you don't have to feel that way that it's that you're not choosing to go through this that it's an illness and you need support to get through it and lastly that um 
if like Maha said at the start of our conversation that if you're not fasting, you can still contribute to Ramadan in other ways. You can still pray, you can still give charity, you can still be involved. But if it's not good for you, it doesn't have to feel like a conflict that you have to do this at the risk of your own health. Wonderful. Thank you for hearing. And Maha, if I come to you. Yes, um, you know, one of my girls, she said was something really beautiful to me once. She said, you know, we all have been given a struggle to go through and this is our struggle in life. So I say to everyone, please, you know, don't say, you know, get into this victim frame of mind because that's the most dangerous thing that, you know, we are the victim. You know, nobody understands. I said, your mother has her own struggles in the Ramadan. She has to go through them, but you can't see them. Yes. So what your mother is going through, you're not going through that. So you have been given something which you have the power to go through. So you are not facing your mother's struggles because you don't have the strength to go through what she has to go through uh, in the Ramadan. So everybody has a struggle. So please don't uh, think that you're the only one. We all have to go through something in Ramadan. So this is something you have to get on top of, you know. So you, for, first thing is, please, you know, you have to like make a clear distinction between your disorder, you know, what your disorder wants in Ramadan and what you want from Ramadan. Yes. And let's, you know, work through that. And you And you have the strength, you have the power, you have the ability to work through this, because there was someone from Belgium who once said to me, you know, we, uh, she was a Christian and she made a decision to go to Germany and embrace Islam. And then she went to work in the Middle East. And I was shocked with how quickly she got on top of everything because she had a passion. She said, you know, Maha, remember one thing, human spirit has, is strong enough to crush the mountains. So we cannot be living under these rules, eat this, eat that, do this, do that. She said, no. So I say to everyone, let, let's, you know, focus on our strength and our power, you know, what, why we are here, what our purpose in life is. And do not please. I said, I hate it. I hate things controlling me. And I said, I'm not going to allow someone to tell me what to eat and what not to eat. I said, you know, now I retaliate. I'm like, no, you know, why? Why shouldn't I be eating this? And if I want to eat this much, I can. If I want to eat less, I can. But, you know, there is no way I'm going to have the food rules because the life is too short. And about the body image, you know, that's a complete, you know, that's uh, again, I say to them, you know, that's not your focus on the Ramadan, you know, so let's just, uh, this month is never going to come back, you know, it's even in our faith, you know, if you knew the significance and the value of this month, my God, you would be begging Allah to give you this month again and again. So let's be grateful he has chosen us for this month, we are here. Let's make use, you know, of every single second because time is very precious. And do not waste it, you know, with this, uh, uh, the scales and, you know, that's something or the mirrors and everything, you know. So let's make most of it and let's go through with it. And even, you know, with the body image, I say to them, but, you know, why do you have to dress the way they dress? You know, you're unique, you're individual. Dress the way you want to dress, yeah? Why are you intimidated by others? I said, you know, imagine if the whole world looked like Paris Hilton. How boring it will be. So, you know, celebrate what you have been given and go forward, please. Don't be like Kim K or Britney S, you know. We will have a very boring world with everybody looking the same and behaving the same and speaking the same, right? So uh, celebrate, you know, you're the beautiful uh, diversity. So we have to celebrate who we are. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And that's such a, a good note to, to end on. I mean, I could have this conversation with you both all day but I think this has just been a really fantastic conversation I have one very important quick question to end on I can't believe I nearly forgot this but I'm very curious for your answers it can be just a, a very short but um what we always ask at the end of these conversations for our episodes 
at our Centre for Appearance Research, we have a cake and coffee morning, which is now resumed to being in person on campus, which is very exciting. Last week we had donuts courtesy of Kirsty, so we take turns for different members to, to bring in cakes or, or sweet treats for this coffee morning. So I'd like to know if you were able to come along to our coffee morning, what cake would you bring? I was actually going to bring this and now my uh, my surprise is spoiled, but I'm <laughs> I'm hoping... To... You'll have to do it before the episode comes out, Faheen. Yeah, true. I would bring in uh, jalebis. I don't know if you've heard of them, Nadia. I'm sure Maha knows what they are. They're like these deep fried sugary treats with a lot of sugar syrup on them. And yeah, we love them in our South Asian culture. So that's what I would bring in to yeah, get everyone in a sugar coma. Yeah, brilliant. And try something new, I imagine, for, for many. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Maha? And me, I mean, I'm confused because I'm a very sweet person. So just say the name sweet. My mind is in, in, in a sweet coma, in a sugar coma straight away. I mean, I don't think so they will appreciate Sour Patch and, you know, these kind of jelly sweets. Uh, I love Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I, oh my God, that's like my extreme, you know, I, I love it. Skittles and these things, give them to me every day, you know. I think I, I would make a dessert and I, I would bring, like, I would either bring, um, I bake cakes, you know, so every birthday I have to bake a cake, you know. So I, I would either bake a cake or, you know, I would bring the, the, the Pakistani traditional. Um, uh, Fahin, do you know gajar ka halwa? You know, with, with, the, with the cream, clotted cream. Wait, Maha, explain the cake for us. Oh, uh, basically, I've uh, ever since I was 14 or 13, I baked this uh, simple cake, but then it, it has like these nuts and this coconut. So it's sort of super fluffy and spongy. It's a very basic recipe, but then I decorate it with, you know, with the, with the, with the, with the double cream and, you know, uh, with the buttercream. And then I add, you know, everything on the top, you know, from the desiccated coconut to the sprinkles. It's something I have to make for the birthdays. <laughs> yeah, sounds, sounds amazing. No, it's, it's, it's not professional, it's lopsided, but, you know, still. We love that. It, it adds some charm. Yes, honestly, I, I'll bake the cake, I'll bring that, or I'll be, bring, you know, the, the, that carrot uh, halwa. And it's uh, really nice. That's something to die for. <laughs> or bring the whole Indian sweet shop, uh, Fahim. One day we'll have to do that. Yeah, I think I'm thinking of laddus as well now, and the barfi. <laughs> Yeah, they're all of our sweets with a lot of sugar and ghee and yeah, they're good. They're good. It's really amazing. Honestly, they're the best. Nadia, you've sent us on a tangent. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. I was like, get South Asians, three South Asians together and get them talking about sweets and then we're going to be here for some time. But um, (laughs) that's, that's wonderful. Well, thank you both. Fahina Maha so much for for joining me today and for this really incredible conversation I've really enjoyed it thank you so much for having us Nadia as I already knew I would I really enjoyed that and I'm actually still thinking about what Maha said with countries that don't have eating disorder treatment facilities or when they do they're just so inaccessible as well i know it's devastating to think about honestly and i think there's just so much to be done to improve eating disorder treatment and prevention globally it's just such a huge equity issue yeah it's a good way of putting it like a huge equity issue and 
Um, as you said in the interview, Nadia, you were just scratching at the surface of that. There was so much more that could mm. be delved into. Yeah. And on a lighter note, um, all those cakes, <laughs> all those cakes, <laughs> they just sounded delightful. I want them all now. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're great. And we, we went on. for. for there were time. more cakes. <laughs> I want more. It just went on and on. But it was brilliant. And I've actually put some of the recipe links in the episode transcript in case you aren't familiar with some of the cakes oh okay well that is a lovely plug as well Nadia so um for the listeners we've been working very hard very hard I emphasize behind the scenes on making the show more accessible and are working towards having a full catalog of transcripts um but we have as you could imagine quite a backlog (laughs) over five years Mm -hmm. of this podcast Um, and we're also working out at the moment on where would be best to host the transcripts as well yeah hopefully on the car website eventually but in the meantime if you're after a transcript please email car at uwe.ac.uk to make a request and, and we'll see what we can do yeah excellent we will hopefully have an update very soon on a more streamlined way to access episode transcripts but just to let you know we are working on it we certainly are and just to reference back to Fahin's paper I believe that will be behind a paywall, but you can email Fahin, I'm sure she'll be very happy to send that on to, to anyone. And the paper was co-authored with Drs. Yael Yatza, Philippa Deirdrix and Helena Lewis-Smith. Okay, and with that, I think that's all we have time for. So a huge thank you to Maha and Fahin for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Appearance Matters, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and gives us a little boost. It really does. And remember, <laughs> you can keep <laughs> you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in our bio. OK, until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>